Well, if you'd open your Bibles this morning um, and take your notes out, we have a lot of scriptures that I want to show, uh, share with you today. We're not going to be in the book of Romans, but I wanted to take this Mother's Day as a day that we set aside. And I'd like to, not every year, but a lot of years, I like to really stop and reflect on the gift that is the Christian family. I had the privilege and really the blessing of growing up in a home where Christ was the center of our home. It wasn't a perfect home at all. My home where I'm raising my children is far from perfect. If you came and visited my house when I wasn't, didn't have my guard up, uh, you, you, you wouldn't see me be a perfect father. You wouldn't see, well, you might see Deborah be a perfect mother. Um, but you wouldn't see those things. But you would see us doing our best. I try my best so that I hope that my kids would be able to say when they grow up, I hope that they'd be able to say, you know, that dad and mom were the same people in church as they were at home. Um, And I'm not always going to get that right, and you're not always going to get that right. And I fully understand this morning, and I always want to get this out right at the beginning, is that the... A distinctively Christian home is a, is a wonderful blessing. And I understand that not everybody has had that experience. And we're talking about good news in a broken world. The brokenness of our world around us has really ravaged the family in recent decades. I think you'd agree with that. And so I'm sensitive, and I try to be sensitive to the fact that there are people here that they that you, you listen to a message or you look at the scripture and you say, Ethan, that all sounds nice on paper, it all sounds wonderful, but that just hasn't been my experience. I'm sensitive to that. But at the same time, I don't want to make the mistake of not proclaiming what the scripture portrays as the ideal and what the scripture challenges us to. And really, the, the, a distinctively Christian home and a Christian family is one of the greatest ways that you and I can proclaim the good news of Jesus to the broken world around us. You may not be, you may not be a, uh, we think about the great heroes of the faith and we think of people that are missionaries, they'll go and they'll proclaim the gospel all around the world or we think of famous evangelists of years gone by or famous pastors or churches. But I can, encourage, can I encourage you this morning that one of the most effective ways you can speak the gospel to this generation is by being a Christian mother, a Christian father, a Christian grandparent. It's one of the most powerful things you can do. And what I want to show you this morning, regardless of your background, is that if the church of Jesus Christ could get back to just simply living the values of the family, what a powerful message it would say to the world. You know, in the news a lot, you're going to see and you have seen, there's a lot of discussion about family values. There's even movements that are very political in nature that talk about values voting. How many of you ever heard that kind of term before? Vote, for, uh, vote values or vote family values. And sometimes I think as the world looks at it, one of the tragedies of, uh, of the last decade or so has been that some people from a political standpoint, they promote family values, but then their lives live the complete opposite. There's a sense of hypocrisy that happens there. Well, I am 100% in favor of of voting for family values. I'm 1,000% more for Christians who will live those family values. Because, and and I'm thankful for every election and every decision that's that's made that supports the Bible. Truly, a 100% thankful for that. I believe in being politically engaged. But listen, the political in- involvement only gets us so far. It only gets us so far. It only, it only delays the world's encroachment on us. But if we can raise a generation of believers, if this church, if this church, and it's one of my prayers that if the Lord allows me to be here for another 30 years, if God would let me be here long term, is that we would see, continue to see generations impacted for the faith. And that is a way that we can impact this world with the good news of the gospel. So travel with me through some scriptures this morning as we, as we leave the book of 
Romans just for one week, and we think about the good news of a Christian family. I just want to give you three truths that scriptures give us. First of all, I want to begin with this. In the Christian family, in the Christian family, marriage is sacred. Marriage is sacred. You've probably heard this before, but on this Mother's Day, let's all the men, let us be reminded that one of the greatest things that, that you can do men as a father is to love your children's mother, to love your wife, because the family is built not on the children, but the Christian home is built on the marriage. Christian homes are founded on marriage. Now, again, God does not, all, God does not call all people to married life. In fact, he will call some people to single life, and there's a blessing in that. So, don't, so I need to explain that from the beginning too. But today we focus on the blessing that is the home, and the first principle of the Christian family is that marriage is sacred. Look with me in the book of Genesis. I, I did discover two typos in your notes today, and this is the first one, so please forgive me. We should be in Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse number 18. And familiar verses for many of us, but let's read them fresh and new and see what God has for us today. Genesis 2 and verse number 18. This is right after the creation of the world. At the very beginning on the sixth day when God created man, it says that in verse 18, and the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him unhelp meet for him. The idea there of the help meet for him is the idea of fitting, that the man was not complete, the man was not complete in and of himself as God looked out. He created, it's amazing actually, and I, we could do a whole discussion on this, but do you know God, I'm, re I'm reading a book that I highly recommend, it's called Delighting in the Trinity. I and I it was just challenged that a lot of us as Christians, we don't think a lot about the Trinity. Um, at least nowadays we don't. But it's a, the miracle of the mystery of God is that God has always existed in relationship. Did you ever think of, just, just think about that concept there, that before anything was ever created, God did not create man because he was lonely. Right? God didn't have a need to create us. And we're going back to the creation story right now. God was perfectly complete. God was perfectly uh, fulfilled in his being as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's this wonderful, there's this wonderful uh, community of the Trinity. And, we, and the, the point of the message today isn't to explain that, just to use that as a, as a frame of reference. And so God creates man to share in that relationship that he has with himself. But then as he created man, he looked at Adam and he said, it's not good that the man should be alone. And I believe that God gave to mankind, God gave to mankind the very closest thing that exists. And it's, it's not a, it's, don't, I'm not giving any heresy here. I'm saying it's the closest thing imaginable that exists to what Father, Son, and Spirit have in the Trinity. A union. Look at how this is described, that the man is not complete without the woman in the marriage relationship. Marriage has been so cheapened in our society today. It really has been. And we need to be careful that as Christians, we don't begin to adapt, adopt worldly views of, of marriage. And all of you that are unmarried, that especially the young people who hope to be married someday, you need to get a firm grasp of what family and what marriage is now in your youth. And look at, look at how it is described. It's not good for a man, for the man, that the man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam. And so Adam names everything. And now look at what happens, though. There was no help found from him. Now down to verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept. And he took one of his ribs 
and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. This is referred to as the one flesh relationship between a man and a woman. And you'll notice right from the beginning that that God created male and female in their distinct and different sexual roles. That is why there is no, as, as marriage is being redefined in our culture today, when you remove the when you remove the distinction of the sexes, you do not have marriage by definition. They cannot Male and male cannot complete each other. Female and female cannot complete each other. It is male and female that are joined together both spiritually and sexually as one flesh. And it is a sacred union that is ordained by God. And we're never to let the the culture redefine or cheapen it. Now there's more that's built on this. So the Bible says even more about this. So there's the one flesh relationship between man and woman. That they are, that in some way, if you are committed, if a husband and a wife will be committed to this thing called marriage, that, you will, that there is a union of those two souls and bodies that cannot, be, that cannot be counterfeited in any other way in this world. And it represents something about God. And we'll see more about that. So there's so this first principle is that marriage is sacred. So there's a one flesh union, but then there is the one flesh covenant. If you're following along with me, Jesus Jesus provides some explanation in Matthew chapter 19. I'd have you look at this passage as well. And just stay with me because we're going to look at several passages. I do have them, I think all of them on the on the screen, but it's sometimes it's just great to move through the Bible and to Mark those passages for reference. They asked Jesus about this. What, what did Jesus believe about marriage? Verse 3, the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, now I'm going to paraphrase this, is it legal for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And we talk about the sacredness of marriage. He says, is it, is it, they ask him a question. Now, this culture, the culture of the Pharisees was a place in which they, they were very concerned with, on the outward level, on the surface level, they wanted to appear to obey all of the laws of God. But in their hearts, they'd become very hard, and they had cheapened marriage. And the way they had cheapened the marriage relationship was what we refer to in our world today as no-fault divorce. Where they would say that, can I divorce my wife for any reason? You say, well, why would they want to do that? Well, they were just as fleshly and carnal and evil as many men are today who grew tired of their wives and wanted to, wanted to move on and be with someone else. It's a problem that's been with society for a long time. But Jesus' view of marriage is, is so much more sacred than that. And he very flatly says, in verse number four, he answered and said unto them, have ye not read? Now these were people that had done a lot of reading. They knew the Old Testament. Jesus said, well, don't you, shouldn't you know the answer to this question? Shouldn't you know this? Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be, what's it say? 
one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. This is amazing. Jesus says that they are no longer two distinct, in some level now, that these are no longer two distinct individuals, but the two have become what? Have become one flesh. Where, what therefore, not just has been joined together, but what therefore who? God has joined together. Let not man put asunder. Jesus is very clear that this one flesh union, when a man and a woman come together and they covenant to whatever the vows are, I know there's a lot of rewriting and personalization of vows these days. I'm, a, I'm just a real traditionalist. I really like the, uh, all the, the traditional vows. We use them at our wedding. But the point is this. There, is, there are no marriage vows that I have heard of, well, maybe there are, where people say that we commit ourselves to each other as long as we both still like the arrangement. It doesn't say that. If you have taken a, a marriage vow, if you have done that, then you are, you said, and if you use the traditional vows, until what? Until death do us part. Do you know why that's the traditional vow? Because God said death is the only thing that ends the marriage vow. But I like to, any weddings that I've conducted or been a part of, I like to use the scripture and remind individuals that as you make a marriage covenant, it's not a contract, it is a vow, and, what, and it's, a, it's a covenant. And what solemnizes that is not the authority vested in the minister or the authority vested in the state. It is when you bring a covenant, when a covenant is, when two people have any form of covenant, they're saying that this is their a witness before their friends, before their family, but ultimately they are pledging themselves before who? Before God. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And Jesus actually here, and the Old Testament law and its teachings on adultery and on marriage actually is, are some of the most powerful writings in ancient time on the rights of women in ancient societies. In most ancient societies, women were very poorly treated. Don't let anyone tell you, don't let anyone tell you that the Bible is, is demeaning to women. There's no ancient literature that is more honoring and more protecting of women throughout history than the law of God and then especially the New Testament. Because it says, Jesus said, Jesus said the law of Moses said that you were legally, you were legally, not just, not just morally, but you were legally committed to care for, for a man to care for his wife as long as they lived. It's a sacred, sacred vow. And as men, we need to take that seriously as women. We need to take that seriously. There's a one flesh covenant. There are things in our culture today that have, that have undermined that, and really Christians are unfortunately participating in many of them. I remember hearing these studies when I was a child, and very recently a new study was released that said the very same thing. But did you know that, and you may have known this, but did you know that the divorce rate is higher among, co among men and women who cohabitate before they get married. It has been for decades, and it continues to be today. You can research it, actually, most recently. Why? Because it's a cheapening. Where it, it, I read one person say it cheapens marriage to simply a piece of paper. In fact, how many of you have heard somebody make that statement? Well, why should we get married? It's just a piece of paper. Have you heard that? Well, for Christians... For believers, we are supposed to proclaim such a higher ideal of what marriage is. But not just to say it, but to live it. More about that as we come to the conclusion in a few minutes. So marriage is the foundation. A Christian home is built on, on the sacredness of marriage. It's a one flesh relationship. It's a one flesh covenant. But you'll find in the scripture that there's two purposes of marriage. And this is, this is vitally important too. As for all believers, if you're in this marriage, if you're in a marriage right now, 
as you think about this, God has given you that marriage for two purposes. First of all, the first purpose of marriage the Bible gives us is companionship. You saw that in the book of Genesis, right? Where he says that it's not good for the man to be alone. So he brings the help that is me. The first purpose of marriage is companionship. I'm, Proverbs 5, you should read it. Proverbs 5, they're rather explicit verses. I left the best parts out, and I just went with chapter 5, verse 18. But take time to read chapter 5. It talks about, it challenges men to be faithful to their wives. But it talks about the joy, the joy of a long marriage. In Proverbs 5, 18, let thy fountain be blessed. It says, and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. The plan, the plan of God is for uh, men and women to get married young, and I know that's not a culturally acceptable statement today, but the plan of God has been for men and women to marry young, to start families, and to grow old and gray and wrinkled together, and to look back in their, in their silver years and to continue to rejoice, for men to rejoice with the wife of their youth. That's the plan of God. And Christians, we are to display that. If you read the book, and I've quoted this author very often. Many of you know he's one of my favorite authors, Tim Keller. He says, he challenges those who are kind of in the middle stages of marriage. He challenges them, and he says, if you're going through difficulties, if you're going through struggles, obviously he points them to the Lord, but he gives them a very practical piece of advice. And he says this, he said almost statistically, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, statistically, almost every marriage will improve if you just wait five years. Interesting bit of information, isn't it? He also mentioned, how many of you ever heard the statement, well, I'm, this is not the same person that I married, right? You've heard that before? This is not the same person that I've married. He also writes in that book, and forgive me, I should have checked the numbers, but if you're married for a lifetime, if you're married for, if God would allow you to be married 50 years, how many in the room have been, I think at least two couples in here married 50 years, right? The Varnos and the Thompsons. Praise the Lord. Let's hear 50 years of marriage. 55. 55. All right, I stand corrected. He said, if you're married for that length of time, Oh, 56. We're going to have a head off, a face off there on that. We won't interview them. We, could, we should have them up on a panel one of these days. You know, we could do a, do a no, you don't want to do it? Jane, you'd be, I could see, you'd want, Jane, you'd be all about it. <laughs> he writes in the book, I believe if I have my numbers right, if you are married for 50 years, you will have been married to the same person now. For 50 years, you, have, you will have been married, in one sense, to about four different people through that period of time. Because people change. And who you married, who you married uh, 16 years ago, we're coming up on our 16th anniversary, who you married five years ago, who you married 20 years ago, 50 years ago, is not the same person. Hopefully, hopefully you're growing together in the Lord. But there are emotional changes, there are physical changes, there are health changes. There are just circumstances in life that affect people. But the marriage union is not about the level of, it's not about the level of satisfaction that I derive or that I get from my spouse. It should be about my willingness to be the companion to my spouse that she needs. And in that way, again, I get to my conclusion before the midpoint, but in that way, we picture Christ's love for us. So, in the proverb, rejoice with the wife of thy youth. To look back. I think it's one of the tragedies we see in our generation is people, people going through their whole life, raising their children, and there's this rash of people in their 50s and sometimes even their 60s now separating or getting divorced even among Christians. Now, if you are here and you've been divorced, listen, I don't say any of this to discourage you, 
But if you're divorced, if you're remarried, the marriage that you are in right now is an opportunity to honor God with it. This is God's plan. Twofold purpose of marriage, companionship, but there is a second purpose. And we cannot lose this, and it'll segue us into our next point. The second purpose of marriage is the raising of children. It's the raising of children. Now, even in this way, in some ways, the church generally is losing this understanding. One of the, the first command that God gave to Adam and Eve, now first, the raising of children is not the exclusive purpose of marriage. That's important. Some people try to say that. Raising children is not the exclusive purpose of, man, of marriage. The first purpose is that companionship, that one flesh relationship that we're created for. You find that in the scriptures. But the first command given to, given to um, Adam and Eve is to be fruitful and multiply. To be fruitful and multiply. The purpose of God, there is a movement now even for, for young Christian people to wait and to wait and to wait. And, and, and every family has to make these decisions on their own. So, but at the same time, the reluctancy, the reluctancy of Christian parents to having children is not coming from God's word. It's coming from the culture around us. You see, one of the purposes of marriage is the raising of children. A fascinating passage of scripture that I had never encountered. I mean, I'm sure I've read it, obviously, but I'd never really encountered it until we were at a marriage conference recently, is Malachi 2.15. The prophet Malachi speaking about marriage problems in the nation of Israel. Marriage problems in the nation of Israel. Malachi 2.15, speaking of the, Isra the Is Israelites and their view toward marriage, he reminds them and there's more verses that would give context, but just look at 15. He reminds them, and did not he make one, yet had he the residue of the Spirit? And wherefore one? That he might seek a goodly seed. That can also be translated, because he wanted godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously, against the wife of his youth. What's he saying here? He's saying to the men, be faithful to your wives. Be faithful to your families. Don't be, don't remember, God made of two, God made one. Why did he do it? And he's given his spirit. There's a spiritual component to it. Now, why did he do it in the middle of the verse? Because what does God want? What does God desire? He desires a godly what? A godly seed. He desires godly offspring. One of the privileges that you and I have as, as, as the people of God in this generation is while the culture around us may be moving further and further the church, uh, from the Bible, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has the opportunity from within to raise up a distinct and beautiful picture of God's intention. And I think we need to take that seriously, very seriously, which is why, by the way, this is just a little side note, this is why, by the way, we are very much intentionally a biblically and family-centered church as opposed to the very consumer-driven church culture of our day. You say, you might not know what I'm referring to, but it's intentional. There's a very consumer-driven mentality in churches today where people filter in and out of a building. They filter in, they filter out, they've got programs, they've got a lot of stuff happening, and they've got a, you know, and I'm not against all these things in general, but there's a, there's a sense in which there's a great band, there's a great message that's given, the people come in, they see the, the church show, and they leave. I'm not passing judgment on any particular church, but we as a body, and I don't think it's just me, I think it's what you desire as a church, is for us to be a place that takes the word of God seriously because we want to make sure that these truths are carefully instructed to the next generation. Because we've been called to raise a godly seed. One of the grandmothers in the church just shared with me before the service today, she didn't know what I was speaking about, 
but shared with me this morning conversation with her grandson and how that, that just how the, the, her grandson, they were talking about someone who passed away and the grandson even said to her, said, well, life is temporary. This life is temporary. Those are the kinds of things. We don't want our boys and girls just to come in and, and be entertained. We want them to grow in the riches of God's word. And it's on purpose. It begins in the home, but then it is to be supported by the local church. By the way, that's why you should connect your, your, you should connect your children to as many. Deborah and I are at the point right now, we have uh, three of our four children are all in different community sports leagues. That will test your commitment to the Lord's work. It really will, and I'm glad we do it because it, it also gives me another, another perspective on the pressure that's placed on parents. But we've made a commitment that our children, we have a wonderful team of, we have a wonderful team of, of Christian workers who are dedicated on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights to teach our kids the Word of God. They're going to leave the ball game 30 minutes early on Wednesday night. I'm not telling you you have to do that. I'm not passing judgment on anybody. But I am saying, I'm not, called, I'm not called by God to raise a great softball player. That's not my calling. And you could fill in the blank. It could be, it could be music lessons or, or it, it, whatever it is, whatever activity it is. We're not called by God primarily to raise kids that fit in well with the culture. We're called by God to raise because God is seeking from us a godly seed. He wants to see our children walk in the faith after us. It's got to be priority. The world will push. The world will test. But we have to be cheerfully and joyfully let people know, listen, our first commitment is the spiritual formation of our children. We're not preparing them for high school graduation. We're not preparing them for graduation day. We're not preparing them for, for a career. We're not preparing them for their wedding day. We prepare them for judgment day. And we will, we will stand before God for how, how we raised our families. And he challenges a whole nation in Malachi. Why? Because, first of all, in the Christian home, marriage is sacred. Secondly, children are celebrated. Children are celebrated. Isn't it a blessing? No one announces, no one gets on Facebook and announces that next morning my fetus has arrived. Nobody says that. I'm going to get politically incorrect for New England right now. Everybody's, that, that mama is with child. We celebrate children. Children are not an inconvenience. We celebrate lots of children. The Bible says, be fruitful and multiply. My parents obviously took that very seriously. I'm only half the Christians that they are, apparently. But there's a blessing. But I have friends with big families. I, people think that we have a big family with four. It's, it's big these days, but I have friends around the country with much bigger families. And you know, I hear often that mom, a mom will be in the grocery store a mom will be in the grocery store and people will make comments. Those all yours? Or just, and I've, I've never personally experienced that, but people look down on that or they, like, boy, the people of God, we ought to be people that just love children. Just love children. And listen, let me encourage you, maybe and at some stage in your life, you know, you may, God may call you to foster children. I mean, the Christian, there's a huge need in our community right now. The huge need in our community, really, it's all over, for children to be fostered. And you might say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, we're done having kids, any of that. Well, maybe God would use you to foster someone else's children that, can't, that aren't being cared for. But as the church, we celebrate life. We celebrate children and pregnancy why? Because children are the gift of God and they are the evidence of his blessing. The evidence of his blessing. 
It's the convenience culture where life has become about our individual, our individual pursuits and the things we want to do. But if you're, if you're, if God has given you the blessing of being a parent or a grandparent, what a what what a gift. Psalm 127, three through five, lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. You saw that statement, the children are a heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. It's been, it's been since the, the leaked news this week of the Roe versus Wade decision. And by the way, we ought to thank God. If this is true, we ought to thank God what we've been praying for for years and years and years. For more than 50 years, believers have, have fought for life, have championed for life. We ought to thank God that this has happened. I know it's not, it's not the, the end. It's, in many ways, it's just the beginning. But watching the news, and, and I don't watch a lot of news anymore, very little, but seeing, the, seeing people that are just so angry about this. Have you noticed that, the anger that you're seeing? There's, it, it's, it's a sad state of the culture when women would... would be, have the desire to destroy their own children. And fathers would rather, rather the convenience of life and pressure a woman to destroy an unborn baby. And we as a church need to never, just, just because we, have, we are surrounded by a culture that's in, in New England, it's the complete opposite viewpoint here, I understand that. But as a church of the living God, we must always stand for life. We must always speak up. Why? Because each child is uniquely created and treasured by God. But then also, we must make sure to also live that. If, and and the, the, the things you hear from the other side, well, if you're pro-life, if you're pro-life, you need to be pro-life the whole way through. And you know what? Many Christians are. I have, I have so many Christian friends who are, who are fostering fostering unwanted children. They're caring. They're adopting. It's a whole movement. So don't let anybody tell you. Don't let anybody mislabel believers and say, oh, well, all they care about is life in the womb. They're not doing anything for all of these children. That is not true. It's not true at all. So much is being done in the name of Jesus for children in these situations. But why do we believe that? Because we believe, as Psalm 1, this is the other reference that needs to be corrected, Psalm 139 Describing that child in the womb, the scripture says, David writes, thou hast possessed my reins. That's an interesting phrase, a little bit difficult phrase. The idea behind it, that Hebrew phrase, is the reins are the innermost parts of a person. And David is basically saying this, God, you designed not just my body, but you designed who I am emotionally, spiritually, mentally. He says, thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee. When I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. The very earliest stages of development, when his body was not yet fully formed, he says, God, you knew me. He got, that statement at the beginning, you have possessed my reins, he's not just saying that, that, that the, it's not just the heartbeat, it's not just the, 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 the body parts that are formed, it is the very soul of the person is created in the mother's womb. It's a, it's a mystery. It's a miracle. But it's God fashioning. Several years ago, uh, Mrs. Bailey picked up a painting that was at the, uh, I think it was at the New Direction uh, Pregnancy Center, and she gave it to me, and it just took me forever to put that up. But a few weeks ago, we hung that painting up 
underneath the sign of the nursery. It's a beautiful painting of a potter's wheel. It's a conceptual drawing of a potter's wheel and, the, the, and, and really of a, of a little baby being formed. But God is carefully, if you just have a chance when you leave today, take a look at that. But we believe that each life is fashioned by God, both inwardly and outwardly. We believe that everyone, whether perfectly formed or physically disabled, every life has value from God. Thine eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. What he's doing in this psalm is he's realizing that God, has, that God loves him. Aren't you thankful that God loves you? Well, David says, I'm so thankful that you love me now, but then he reflects back and he says, God, you've always loved me. You have always loved me. Even before my mother knew me, you loved me. How precious are also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. It's a beautiful, beautiful song that David wrote about God's knowledge of him from the womb into eternity. The Christian family... And the Christian family, marriage is sacred. And children are celebrated. And then finally, the gospel is illustrated. You see, as believers, why is it so important? Why is it so important that we stand for the truth of marriage and live out a Christian marriage? Why, is, why are these things so important that we, that we stand for life? Because biblically, when we live the principles of the Christian family, we display the gospel we display the gospel to our spouses, to our children, and to the community around us. The, the, why does the devil rage so much against the family? Because the family is a loud and bold proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what the family is. And as the, and as the family, as the family loses uh, its visibility in the culture, so does that illustration of the gospel. In fact, the, the descriptions in the New Testament of the family of God, and, and all, it's, you, cannot, you cannot understand John 3.16 without a biblical concept of fatherhood, that God would send his son. You can't understand the brotherhood and sisterhood of the faith outside of the family bond. Now, the gospel is pictured, but it's an imperfect picture. As I said at the beginning, even the best of families are never going to live up to the picture that God's called us to. It's not going to happen. But we have the opportunity to picture the love of Christ. The opportunity to picture the love of Christ. Here is the gospel pictured in the in the marriage relationship, Ephesians 5, 25-32. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh." That's going all the way back to Genesis now, the purpose of marriage. And verse 32, look what it says. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Inasmuch as men, we love our wives, we show 
the love of Christ for his people. Inasmuch as we lay our lives down for our wives, for our children, we show the love of Christ for his people. And when we fail to do that, we dishonor the name of Jesus. It's a picture of the love of Christ. It's also a picture of the eternal family. Ephesians 3, notice, I want to show you a couple of Ephesians references. Ephesians 3, 14 and 15, notice what Paul mentions. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the what? The whole family in heaven and earth is named. This is really cool. Your family, I've spoken all morning about the importance of your family, your family, your family, your family. But you realize your family is not the end goal. Your family is actually supposed to, in a sense, get lost in the whole family. The whole family. That ultimately God has used your family, God has used your church, God has used many things throughout, throughout history to establish his family. God has always desired a family. God speaks to us in familial terms. He's, he talks here he's, in Ephesians 3, it's described that there's a whole family in heaven and where? The family of God exists not just in heaven and in earth. That's why be careful because your family is not to be separated from the whole family of God. That's a danger in that there's a, there's a, there's a, a whole family movement that actually separates people from the church of God. They're supposed to work in concert together, your family and my family together as the whole family of God. It's beautiful. And that, by the way, is how, if you have a wonderful family, you can extend that love to those who don't experience the same thing. It's, a wonderful, it's been a wonderful thing over the years to, to learn from my parents, to watch my parents open their home to those that did not have the same joyful family experience that we did. Why? Because our family is part of the bigger family. Your family is part of the family of God, the whole family. And it's not just in heaven. It's supposed to be here on earth too. In Ephesians 3, in Ephesians 1 also it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. According he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the, say that phrase with me, unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. And then describing how the family works, 1 Timothy 5. It describes how we're all supposed to be, picture our families joined together as the family, it talks about the old, the young. Rebuke not an elder. What does that mean? Respect your elders. Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters. What is he saying we are in the church? We are fathers. We are mothers, we are brothers, and we are sisters. That is the family of God. And regardless of our human families, each of us can be part of, the, of Jesus' family. In fact, I want to finish with this verse, thinking about what Jesus said. The final verse, Mark 3, verse 33. They say, Jesus, your family is here. Your mother, your brothers and sisters, Mary's here. James and, 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 and Jude, your brothers, they're here. And Jesus says, who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him. Jesus looks at the people that are there, the people that love him, the people that surround him. And Jesus says, behold, my mother, my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and mother. Each person invited into the family of Christ. So, 
as Christians, whether, whether you're married, single, you contribute. You contribute both to maybe the family that resides at your address, but you contribute to the family of God that has come together here. You're called through that witness to proclaim the glory and love of Jesus. It's a wonderful blessing. It's a wonderful privilege and honor. Let's rely on his grace to live that out. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? We come to prayer right now. I don't know, there might be a mom or a dad in here that wants to just give thanks this morning. You just want to thank God in, in this quiet moment and say, Lord, I just thank you for the Maybe you've gotten discouraged. Maybe you've let in the world's culture kind of beat you down. Just give thanks for your children, for your grandchildren, for the, the maybe a nephews or nieces, whoever, however you've impacted a generation. Give God thanks and, and take that stewardship seriously this morning. Maybe there's a, a dad that just needs to reprioritize some things in the home and lead with the love of Jesus. Maybe you're here and you don't have that, that sense of family at home. But you, you read those last verses of Jesus, realize that Jesus has invited you into his family. And it's just by faith. If you'll call on him as your savior, if you'll believe on him, the Bible says you become a part of the family of God. And I would just encourage, encourage us as a church, how are you and I showing that family love to others around us? Just spend a quiet moment as Amy plays and speak to the Lord. Lord, I thank you for every mom or dad or grandparent, Lord, that's just doing their best to follow you. Lord, we, we know we're not perfect, but we thank you for your grace that enables us. God, I pray for our children this morning. I pray for the children of our church. God, I just ask that you'd be working in their lives. Help them to see you in us. I pray that we would raise that godly seed, that godly offspring for you. Lord, we pray for those who are, I just pray with those who are burdened for their children this morning, that you work in their hearts, work through our testimonies, Lord. Let them see Christ in us. We love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.